Good morning. Um, we're going to get started. Adult Bible study. Um, there is no handout. We usually have one. We're we're really we're at or maybe you know near the end of the series we've been doing. Uh, we're not going to meet next week for Sunday school because it's you know we're having church across the freeway there. Uh, Scarecrow Festival time, and um, I thought I would talk about some uh, prophetic matters. You know, if you've it's, it's, it's funny because I I've, you know some folks that, that just have no idea. They haven't watched the news in a week. You know, but a lot of things have happened the last couple of days in Israel. If, you, if you've watched it, and every time that happens, um, it, it kind of draws out the crazies. You know, um, people come out of the Arkham Asylum, and and they begin pontificating uh, all kinds of things. And I can remember when I uh, first started going back to church. You know, I had, had as a youth was dropped off at a church, but we you know didn't really as a family go to church. And my first year of, of law school, so I was like in 96, started going back to church and I started reading materials. And all the materials I kept reading then about prophecy were, uh, a lot of them anyway, were on a theory that uh, within like a generation of, of the, the, uh, the life of the, the people who saw Israel become a nation again in the 1940s, Jesus would come back. Like that was the teaching. It was, real, it was common. And, and it worked really good in the 60s and 70s, but by the time you got to the 90s, you're like, well, if, if the generation that saw Israel become a nation again will also witness Christ's return, you're, you're warning out a clock here. And, uh, but those things come out, and, uh, and, it, and, and the whole theory was theologically absurd, uh, but, but nevertheless, it, it made good, good books, and, and um, you know, there was a book in the 80s. 80, you know, 1987, a book published, 87 Reasons the Rapture is going to happen this year and that kind of stuff. So you get all this kind of fantastic stuff. I, I thought let's, let's talk a little and, you know, just a, a high uh, overview of, of some things. Uh, Matthew 24, Jesus has a, a passage called the Olivet Discourse. I'm just going to catch, catch a, a phrase out of there to show you how crazy stuff happens. Uh, but uh, Jesus had told his... Um, disciples that essentially the temple would be destroyed and that really got them to asking about questions about when uh, when he would return but it's important and, and we don't have time to go through it but if you read chapter 23 of Matthew it is scathing it's one of the most scathing chapters in the New Testament he denounces the leadership he says and I'm just going to get you the phrase here um, verse 13 of 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe is, is, you know, the sound of a funeral dirge. Jesus is more or less preaching their funeral. They ain't dead yet. This is like the, the, the person that wakes up and they're looking at the morning paper and there's their obituary there and not even flattering at that. And they're still alive. Uh, verse 15, woe to you. Verse 16, woe to you. Verse 23, woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, why? They had misled the people. And we've seen that. We've gone through the Sermon on the Mount and in the Sunday morning series. And, and uh, you see how their theology was just so bad. But the fact is they were just bad people. Um, they were like any other lost people except they had roles in religious leadership. So they misled people. So you get the woe to you, verse 25, verse 27, verse 29. There might be a theme going on in, verse, in chapter 23. This is why it's important to highlight your Bibles. You see those repeated phrases. If, if you were going to pick a title um, uh, for 23, 
uh, my, the editors of my translation wrote, Religious Hypocrites Denounced. My title would have been, Woe to You. Right? Because that's what the chapter says over and over. Now, he calls them, and this is, you know, this was a, we call this a seeker-friendly sermon now. Verse 33, snakes, brood of vipers. How can you escape being condemned to hell? Wow, that hurt. Now, what happened? Jesus came, and, and he was born in Bethlehem, virgin birth, and virtually nobody showed up. It's a scandal. They should have known you know, the, the pagan Herod asked the, the sages, you know, where will the Messiah be born? Oh, he'll be born in Bethlehem. Then why didn't you show up? So he shows up, you know, Jesus comes, and, and, and a lot of Jewish people believe, but most of them don't, and certainly the leadership doesn't. And, and so he's fixing to die. When, when you're reading Matthew 23, this is right near the end of his his uh, teaching ministry, he'll die on a cross. But I did want you to catch this one verse. Verse 39, I'll read 37 so you get some context. 37 says in Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. That's been their history. They kill the prophets. The people that come to actually speak the word of God to them get killed. Why? They don't like what they're hearing. They just don't. Uh, And then he says, how often... I wanted to gather your children together. Wait a second, Jesus. I, I thought you, you're only like in your early 30s. How could you have wanted back when those prophets were coming to gather your people together? Right? Jesus is, is God. He's fully God, fully man. Uh, he's wanted over these centuries to gather the people together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, why would they need to be gathered together? Because ever since the, the fall of the northern kingdom, what we sometimes call Samaria, under the, the Assyrians, that happened in the, around 722 B.C., so ancient history. The fall of the, the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, Babylon uh, uh, took J- uh, Jerusalem, 586, 587 B.C., and the people got scattered around that part of the world. Jesus wants to come and gather them back together, and he'll do that. But he hadn't done it yet. He says, you were not willing. There it is. Why couldn't you be blessed? You weren't willing. Why? You don't want anything to do with me, is what he's saying. Uh, See, your house is left to you desolate. He pronounces a judgment. That's what this whole chapter was about. And and you fast forward. Jesus likely is crucified in in, in AD 33. Um, but, but, But by AD 70... The Romans have come through and just destroyed, destroyed it, and, and, and it happens again the next century, but basically they lose their land. I mean, nobody's there, but they largely lose their land. Then you can fast forward. Uh, after World War II, there was heavy pressure in the country, um, some, sometimes called a Zionist movement, but it wasn't just coming from uh, Jewish people, although it largely was, but it was coming from a lot of people. Um, and, and we had this relatively new organization called the United Nations. And there was a lot of question about now that the war is over, what do we do with, with the Middle East? And can we, can we make a nation for Israel? Can we give them some land? And uh, Harry Truman um, publicly um, uh, recognized that Israel is, in fact, a nation. Okay? And then it followed. And the UN did their thing. And you ended up, I think it was 1948, but you ended up with... Uh, a small pocket of land there, very small, like from Houston to Galveston, small, okay? Uh, but it seems much bigger. Uh, and, and, and so that's happened. 
lots of interesting things. But uh, Jesus hasn't come back yet, though. And he says, for I tell you, verse 39, and this is the one to like highlight the whole verse out of chapter 23. Jesus came the first time and you said no. And he says, I'm not coming again, for I tell you, you will not see me again until what happens. And who's the you? He's talking to the Jewish people through their leadership, but he's talking to the Jewish people. I'm not going to come again until you say, you the Jewish people, characteristically, and uh, this is Psalm 118. He's quoting Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Have we heard that phrase before? Remember when the triumphal entry? Yeah. Huh? Yeah, Palm, right, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Yeah, you heard people say that, but then the same people, well, some of them at least, are there a few days later, and they got a choice between Jesus, who fed the 5,000 and called people out of the grave, and some murderer named Barabbas, and they're of one accord. We want Barabbas. So um, he's going to come again when the Jewish people will characteristically say, blessed is he, who, is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's going to require a lot of changed hearts. Now, when you get into Matthew 24, I just want... That's what we're going to talk about. That's a good question. No, no, that's excellent. What is the catalyst to change their hearts? But, Maybe a little bigger than that, though. I'll show you. So Matthew 24, uh, I just wanted you to catch one thing here. Jesus starts talking about things that are going to happen. And in verse 4 says, watch out that no one deceives you. And I really would emphasize that. When, when, these, when we get to a point in history where some events are going to cascade very quickly up to the return of Christ, there's going to be an age of deception. But we already live in an age of deception. Uh, it's called the last days. Peter said in Second Peter, there come these scoffers that mock. But um, they will come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah. They'll deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. And, and this is the reason the first time, you know, as soon as you hear any um, uh, thing about war, you start having people come out saying all these things are fixing to happen. And they might. But, but when, that's where we need to be really, really guarded and careful. The Bible has a whole lot of things that are going to happen before Jesus returns. And um, when you say, well, wars and rumors are wars, what about the First World War? Did Jesus return? That was one among many. We go back. Um, uh, first World War, right, uh, had nothing really to do with Israel as a nation. Second World War, Israel gets formed as a result of that. And there was war in, in, in parts of the world over there, but it really wasn't centered in any way on Israel. Yeah. And importantly about that, because keep in mind, the land they, that they achieved in, in, this, in World War II is not all their land. So all I'm saying is with Matthew 24, it just seems like it, it, as soon as there's some spark of, of war, and we've, we have that now, you'll start having people make all kinds, they become prophets. It's, 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 it's in, um, and your best prophets are on Facebook and other social media outlets, right? Uh, so, I mean, if you want to really learn prophets, that's where you go. So, um, let me go to Romans 11, which is where I really wanted to start. You know, it, it's funny that, that really up until recent times, it has always been a minority position to, um, to believe that Israel has any future. Um, for uh, centuries, um, 
mainstream theology among Gentiles has been largely anti-Semitic, not in the sense of a, of a um, uh, well, let me say what I mean by that. Uh, Anti-Semitic in the sense of interpreting the scriptures that God has finished with Israel. Uh, they misbehave, God has slapped them down, and the church is, is now replaced them, and all the blessings in the Old Testament are to the church. And, and, and that's the thing I, I want to first challenge uh, you on. So we're looking at Romans 11. Uh, there's a word out there you may or may not have heard before called dispensational. Uh, it's from a Greek word in the New Testament that occurs several times, economia. And it's, it's, this is my, my redneck simple version. God deals with different groups of people at different times in different ways at a high level. Uh, and, 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 but, but those from a what we call dispensational view, and that includes me, um, believe Israel has a future, that God's promises in the Old Testament did not evaporate uh, at any point in, in, in time. When you're in Hebrew, uh, Romans 11, uh, this is part of a parenthesis in the book of Romans from 9 to 11. The Roman church, okay, not, not Catholicism, a church in Rome in the first century, has Jews and Christians in it. And Paul repeatedly addresses matters that are Jewish in nature. The entirety of Romans 2 appeals to the Jews. But when he gets through chapter 8 and he's talking about all the theology of salvation, he has this parenthesis, and the real question is, how, are, how am I as a, as, a, as a Christian who's Jewish to understand why the Jewish people characteristically rejected Christ. Like, what's going on? It seems like God throughout the Old Testament has all these wonderful promises of a coming Messiah. And then when He came, we all said, you know, the people said no. And it's like God's whole plan failed. And Paul makes this statement in, in uh, Romans 9, 6. Now it is not as though the Word of God has failed. And he's going to demonstrate 9 through 11, the Word of God has not failed. He's talking about the Old Testament promises to Israel did not fail in God's purposes. So in chapter 11, uh, we won't have time to go through all that stuff before then, but in chapter 11, I asked then, Paul says in verse 1, has God rejected his people, Jewish people? Has God rejected the nation of Israel? Absolutely not. Wow, that's a problem for me. Because in the end of this day, the mainstream, uh, the most popular view is that uh, Israel's done. Uh, the, the promises have been rescinded, as it were. For I too, Paul says, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? Elijah ran off in a cave and he was whining that he was the last solid believer. And God says, it's called an Elijah complex. He said, Elijah, I got thousands of people you don't even know about that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So the point, God always has a remnant. And, and even to that day, and it was true, I mean, Peter's Jewish, he accepted Jesus. I mean, you had Jewish people accept Jesus, there was a remnant. But if, if you fast forward um, down to uh, verse 11, I asked then, this is still Romans 11, 11, uh, I asked then, have they, the Jewish nation, stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. In other words, have they fallen beyond um, restoration? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. That's a weird statement to make. The gospel message 
goes out to everybody, but it's inclusive of the Gentiles. When you read the Old Testament, God's oracles, God's um, uh, prophets almost exclusively speak to nation, national Israel. This is a new thing uh, for the Gentiles to be in the plan of God and to be able to be saved. And then he says, God's program for the Gentiles somehow is going to make them jealous. That's a problem on a number of theological levels, um, because if you think that God just picked those he would save in eternity past, you can't make anybody jealous. Uh, Gentiles coming to Christ can't influence the Jewish nation, but Paul says it will. Now, if their Jewish people's transgression killed Jesus, rejected the prophets, brings riches to the world, and it did, we're here in this church as a proof of that, um, their failure... Uh, I'm sorry, riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their fullness bring? How much more riches, if, if, the, if their denunciation of Christ and the judgment that came brought this rich blessing to the Gentiles, uh, why? Because they killed the Christ and he died for the sins of the whole world. They didn't end his ministry. They launched the new covenant and it's going to bless all the families of the world. How much more, if they come to Christ, would the whole world be blessed? And it will. And very specifically because uh, some verses we'll see in a minute. Let me, I'll hold that part. So um, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Insofar as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Uh, if I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. Paul is always focused on saving Jewish people as well. For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So the, he's, he's starting to plant this seed that everyone who studies the Old Testament knows. The Jewish people will have a national revival. And, 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 and that, that will be coupled with, it will be close in time, to return of Christ. And we're going to get to that. There's a question was asked earlier, kind of what starts that revival, and I'll, I'll talk to that. But um, go down to uh, verse... Um, Let's go a little further. Verse 25. I don't want you to be ignorant of this uh, a mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited or arrogant. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What hardening? It's the hardening in Romans 1 where he talks about when people continue rejecting God, he gives them over to their own sin condition. And that's happened to them as a nation. It doesn't mean that no Jewish people are saved. I, I read lots of books written by Jewish Christians. There are lots of Jewish Christians out there, but most of them are not. Okay? Uh, they're just, they're not. And, and so there's this hardening. You're being given over to your own, your own sin condition. Uh, and in this way, he says, though, he says, it's come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This age is going to come to a close at some point. We've got, you know, like, like this isn't God just sitting around saying, I don't know what I'm going to do to get these Jewish people into the kingdom. What? Well, right. It's not a scriptural term, but it's kind of the idea, right? Jesus said in Matthew 16, I'll build my church. And we're, we live during a time when Jesus is building his church, not his mother church. His program, Book of Acts, is planting local churches. People go out into the world, they evangelize, they plant churches. That's what they do. That's what this age is. And, and at some point, though, the time of the Gentiles will become full, probably because of the sin of the nations. Uh, and we'll, we'll see a little of that in a minute. But here's what I wanted you to catch. Regard, verse 28, regarding the gospel, they're enemies for your advantage, you Gentiles. You, you've reaped... 
an advantage here because the fact is, had Jesus not died on that cross, there would be no salvation for anybody, including the Gentiles. But regarding election, their love because of the patriarchs. Wait a second. The Jewish nation is loved because of the patriarchs. Who were the patriarchs? Abraham. Abraham? Isaac and Jacob. Why would they be beloved because of the patriarchs? Absolutely. It was God's promises to them. And we'll turn and look at that in a second, because that's what I want you to get right, right here. It's so key. Um, anyone who claims they know the book of Revelation, they're a guru on end time stuff. If they are not thoroughly acquainted with the Old Testament, and especially the book of Genesis, don't listen to them. They know nothing. Um, the book of Revelation takes a whole bunch of strands and ties them up in a nice bow. But it, while it has some new content, much of it is not new content. It's wrapping up everything and helping us see how it all fits together. That's right, from, from Daniel. And, but, but really, there's like 250 allusions to the Old Testament. So how well can you know the book without it? It's the kind of thing. But it all starts in Genesis. And it really all starts in Genesis 12. And so we'll see that in a second. But I want you to hold this in your, in your mind. The Jewish nation, after saying, give us Barabbas, is still loved by God, not rejected, because of the patriarchs. Why? Because God's a promise keeper. And he got to a man named Abraham a long time ago and said, I'm doing these things for you and you haven't got to do anything for me. We're going to go look at that. That promise stands today, and it can't be broken. Uh, why? Verse 29, this is out of, out of your whole Bible. This might be one of the most important verses because it's a truism about God. The context of the promises to, to Israel. This verse is the why, why I would say, yeah, of course I'm a dispensationalist, i.e., I think Israel has a glorious future, not because of what they've done, but because of what God promised. You say, well, how can you be so dogmatic about it? Verse 29, right here, Romans 11:29. Since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable, it's a good legal term we use, uh, something's irrevocable, right? You can go and, and make a, a trust to do your estate planning. You have a revocable trust where you can put the money in and take it right back out. But if you want to, um, uh, you know, limit Uncle Sam taking your money, you make an irrevocable trust. In theory, you've put the money outside your control. But what does that mean? It's irrevocable trust. You can't get your money back. It's irrevocable. You can't, you can't rescind it. It's, it, wants it. Once you put your money in that trust, it's there. God makes irrevocable promises. When he says, if you believed in my son, you shall not perish but have everlasting life, people say, oh, you can lose it. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. This is a truism about God. He is a promise keeper. And I wanted you to see that. So let's go think about real quickly these promises go all the way back to Genesis. Your Bible has bookends, Genesis and Revelation. They begin and they end with man and God dwelling together in the garden, a garden of Eden and a garden we call the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. In between, we have God's redemptive history. Some of that history hasn't happened yet, but we've been told ahead of time what it'll be. And it really begins with God picking a man. What was it that was so awesome about Abraham that was the reason God picked Abraham 
at the time called Abram and, and was going to take him um, out of Ur of the Chaldees into the land that flows with milk and honey. What was the exceptional quality? This is a trick question. What was the exceptional quality of Abraham that's the basis for God picking him? Well, did he have faith before God picked him? No. No, right? He, he didn't even have a Costco card. I mean, how useful is this man, right? Uh, he, but, but, but the faith is good because when God says, Abraham, go, he says, yes, sir. He exercises faith right here in Genesis 12. He'll do it again later. Um, the Lord said to Abram, his name gets changed later. God gives him a name a new name, as Jesus does to Peter in the New Testament. It's indicative of their close relationship and God's sovereign authority over him. In the book of Revelation, every Christian will have a unique name only Jesus and you knows. So Abraham ain't the only one getting a name changed. Start thinking about what you might want your name to be. I don't know if you get a say in it. Uh, but that's how close you're going to be to Jesus. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. Here's the promises. First, land. I'm going to give you some real estate. Um, they have some real estate today. No, later in the scripture, and I don't have time to look at it today. All this gets outlined. What we call Israel today is a tiny fraction of what was promised. They never had all the land. Solomon's reign is the time after King David. Solomon had the most of any, but he didn't control all of it. Just some of it was, you know, it's, it's, it's basically from the Nile up to the Euphrates almost. It's just a huge plot of land that's to be theirs. And, and Solomon had the most, but they never get it all. And this isn't a promise you'll get the land and have it for a couple of year, years and then lose it. This is a promise you'll get the land, period. Um, Joshua, in, in, in what we call the conquest, they get a lot of the land. They don't get all of it. Uh, and they have a lot of trouble. So he's giving them promise number one, a land. Promise number two, I'll make you, Abraham, a great nation. These are promises to Abraham, not promises to Israel, by the way. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and I'll make your name great. We're still talking about the man thousands of years later. Uh, and you'll be a blessing. <laughs> Right, and look, look at this. I'll bless those who bless you and curse anyone who treats you with contempt. That's something you can take to the bank. Now, has God always prevented Israel from coming into harm's way? Absolutely not. Read the book of Judges. When they sent it up, he leaves them their own devices, and then people come and take advantage of them, and then they finally get their tail in a crack, and then they whine to God, and he saves, their, saves them. Right? Uh, God let the second war happen. He let Hitler do what Hitler did. God has not um, stopped all evil from ever happening to, to the Jewish people or to the nation. Uh, but he is going to settle all the accounts. Uh, and he says, I'm going to curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and the people on the earth will be blessed through you. These promises will get repeated in part in uh, Genesis 15, Genesis um, 17, Genesis 22. I'm going to go through all of it. But I want you to understand, um, Abraham is getting real estate. Abraham's going to be the progenitor of a nation. And somehow this nation is going to bless all the families of the earth, which is what will be picked up in Genesis 22. That gets quoted in, in Galatians, so I think we'll get there eventually, right? So you'll get to kind of see the connection. But, but uh, uh, you know, Galatians says the gospel, the good news was given to Abraham way back then. Like, what good news? You're reading it, right? This was good news to Abraham. 
Uh, Jesus said in John 8, Abraham rejoiced to see his day. When you turn over to chapter 15, um, things have happened. Especially chapter 14 has got this cool thing where Abraham rescues Lot. You can make like a movie out of it. And, uh, in, in, uh, and then there's this guy named Melchizedek that comes out of the woodwork. He's only mentioned here, one psalm, and then the book of Hebrews. Like he becomes a critical person. But, but there's no priesthood yet of, of Moses. There's no Moses. There's no law of Moses. No Mount Sinai. No Ten Commandments. What's God doing? Um, I learned this a long time ago. It was my Texas version. Um, it, this isn't a Baptist truth, but uh, for, for others, God has an ace up his sleeve, right, at all times. There's a priest that kind of bubbles out of the woodwork here in chapter 14. He's not only a priest, he's a king. You say, where is he a king? The city that later is called Jerusalem. Well, who would be a priest king in Jerusalem? Jesus, right? This guy is a, is a pointer to Jesus, and Hebrews takes that up and runs with it. You go to Hebrews 5, he says, I really want to talk to you people about this Melchizedek guy. You're like, who's he? Uh, he left some breadcrumbs here. So God's doing big things through Abraham. Jesus is already in the picture. God doesn't think of Jesus in the first century. That happened before Genesis 1 because Jesus has always existed and, and, and God knew what he's going to do. So after these events, uh, Abraham saving uh, his, his nephew, Lot, uh, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. And he, um, he, he says to God, you know, I, I don't have any children. I, I can't have any children. And God says, you're going to have so many uh, offspring from you. It'll be like the stars of the sky, verse 5. And then in verse 6, Abram believed God. Believe what plus what? Believe plus nothing. This is Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes plus absolutely nothing. And Paul picks this up and he quotes this verse in, in Romans uh, chapter 4 is the example that even before the law of Moses ever came along, God saved through believing. It was credited to him as righteousness. Now you just read the next couple of chapters. He's not righteous. He goes, you know, God says, you're going to have a bunch of children. And then it stops raining. And so they start to have a little bit of a famine in the land. And he thinks, I'm going to die with no child. God said, you're going to have children and it's going to form a nation. Now you're reasoning that because of the famine, you won't. And because your wife is barren, you won't. That's how the Ishmael thing comes along. So he's not a perfect man. But as you read from here to 22, chapter 22, he is uh, maturing in the faith. He's growing. And by 22, he's really a solid rock. Uh, but here not. But what I wanted you to see is you go later in the chapter, verse 17, uh, well, verse 13, Abram says um, to God, um, I, I, I skipped, verse 8. We had to hear verse 8 first. So, so God said in verse, you know, up above, you're going to have all these children. And, and, and it says, Abraham believed God. But then in verse 6, uh, or verse 8 rather, he, Abram, said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? How do I know I'm getting the real estate? This is the, a problem for us, and this is a lack of faith. God says, I'm giving it to you, and you say, yeah, but how do I know? I mean, I haven't had you sign a contract. We need to have our lawyers paper this thing up. So God, making an accommodation to his lack of faith, papers it up. But he doesn't get to sign the contract. 
Um, he tells them to bring a three-year-old cow and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brings them to them, and they get cut in half. It's a big bloody mess. And, and then uh, the, uh, uh, the sun was setting, verse 12, and a deep sleep came over Abraham. When it was time to ink the deal, he was out cold. Why? Because this promise has nothing to do with the, with the uh, veracity of Abraham or his ability to keep God's word or anything else. He's sleeping through the whole ordeal. The promise is what we call a unilateral contract. God makes the promises. Say, how can I count on it? God makes the promises. Well, how can I count on it? This is the problem with the, the, this worrying about losing salvation. God makes the promises. That's why you can count on it. And he made them to Abraham. Then the Lord said to Abram, verse 13, Know for a certain your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them. They're going to Egypt. God knows that's coming up too. You read the whole book, how weird it is how that happens. Uh, Jacob has a bunch of kids. They don't like Joseph because he's the favorite. And they throw him in a pit and he gets sold into slavery and gets to Egypt and gets in prison. He's accused of rape. He spends years in there. And, and, and then he's the prime minister of Egypt before we know it. And you say, well, how did all these things happen? He said all these things are going to happen right here. We don't get all the details, but they're going to be there 400 years. Then they're coming back to the land. I will judge the nation they serve, Egypt. We'll read about that in Exodus. Um, but you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at good old age. And in the fourth generation, they're going to come back here to this land. And then when the sun was set and dark, you read on, God walks between, some manifestation of God walks between the animals. These promises that God has made, totally unilateral, whether or not they stand or fall, stands on the veracity of God. What did Paul say in Romans 11? The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He's talking about this. They, the, the, the people started thinking, maybe God has given up the Jewish people. And he says, no, because of his love of the patriarchs. Who? Abraham. Why? He told Abraham what he would do, and it hasn't been done yet, and he's a promise keeper. So even in Romans 11, Paul's saying, yeah, we're, we're in what I'll call the, you know, we call it the church age. It's a good way of thinking about it. The program is the church. That's what Jesus is doing. It's why we're here. We're part of his construction project, and it is his church. He is the head of this church, this local body, and he's doing this during this age, but he's not done with Israel. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Um, these promises get repeated to Isaac. I'm not going to read it, but I'll tell you where it's at. It's Genesis 26. When you read Genesis, you say, what, what's really so important there? This promise, this covenant of what he would do, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. This promise gets repeated in Genesis 26 to Isaac, uh, verse 3, verse 24. It gets repeated to Jacob, Isaac's son. Remember that whole thing, he had twins, Jacob and Esau. But it gets repeated to um, Jacob in, in chapter 28. And so... Why did God, why is he going to take care of Israel? Because of the patriarchs? Because he promised them. These promises flow through. Um, in, um, I'm going to read one more. This is Genesis 22. Now, Abraham is still alive. By the time you get to Genesis 22, Abraham's an old guy. Okay? 
uh, his, his boy, Isaac, is a teenager. He takes him up on the mountain. According to Hebrews 11, uh, Abraham understood. You know how, how it would happen, but if he sacrificed his boy on that mountain, that boy was still coming back down alive. That's faith. So Abraham's called the man of faith, uh, the friend of God also. In, in Genesis 22, verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham, now his name has been changed, a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, uh, this is the Lord's declaration, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. He's reaffirming the promise all the way back from Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Um, your offspring will possess the city uh, gates of their enemies. All, listen to this, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Does anyone have a translation other than offspring? In what verse? Hmm? In what verse? Uh, that one in verse 18. All the nations of the earth will be blessed by your seed. Right? And what Galatians is going to say, Paul's going to say, seed isn't plural. Seed is singular. Which seed specifically? Seed of the woman. Which seed specifically, right? You're right, the seed of the woman. Way back in Genesis 15, there would be, uh, a, the woman would have a child that would stomp the head of the devil. But the seed singular is one specific individual in all of human history. Jesus. This is a promise about Jesus. What's the book of Genesis about? Jesus. Big surprise, right? What's the book of Exodus about? Jesus. Who talks to Moses from the burning bush? Jesus. Who's the angel of the Lord that's talking to Abraham here? Jesus. It, 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 it's the theme of the Bible. And, and no surprise. And, 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 and so when we talk about these things, uh, understand that it's these covenants that are the reason Abraham and, and then the, the people of Israel um, have a future. The Mosaic Covenant that comes later, the Ten Commandments and all that, that's to a nation and it's temporary. It's the civil law. It governs how they worship, but it governs how they live and, and what, you have to, what you have to do under the civil law when you back into your neighbor's car. And it governs all that kind of stuff. But, but that was temporary. We have this new covenant and that got introduced, I think, last week or the week before, talking about the new covenant. Um, you know, and, and so you've heard about that. Um, let me go to uh, Zechariah 12, and we'll end there with 12 and 13 with a little bit of this. There's a lot of things I could talk about to try to fit some pieces, but I wanted to bring this to answer the question asked earlier. What changes everything and makes the, the Jewish people turn to Jesus? Um, there's, there's a few reasons, and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll pick up something from, Genesis, uh, from Zechariah 12. This is almost the end of your Old Testament, just before Malachi. And, and I, I suspect we may do a, a series on Zechariah soon, and then we'll, we'll do this in some more, more detail. But uh, there, there is, uh, if you take notes, there's one other passage I would write down I just don't have time to go to, and that's Ezekiel 38 and 39. There's, there's a, a, a sort of climactic battle in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that is um, possibly sometimes what people call Armageddon, but probably not. And, and it seems like it will be, um, it's, it, it's looking forward to a time when some enemies come and, and invade uh, or try to invade Israel. I don't think they'll get to it. Uh, and, and God drives them away. Um, that may be a precursor 
to a lot of the end time start of, sort of stuff that happened over about a seven year period. Another key passage is Daniel 9 that talks about uh, there being a, a peace treaty for, for seven years that the nation of Israel will have to, to protect it. And then in the middle of that seven years, it seems like the treaty is broken. We think the, the person making that treaty is, is someone that, that John would, would call later the Antichrist, um, a world ruler of sorts um, who, who brings peace and then, and then reneges on it. And, and Jesus seems to have that in mind. He calls out Daniel uh, in, in, um, in Matthew 24. So there's lots of pieces that given several sessions we could go through. But I wanted you to see at least this. Just this idea, the main thing is uh, God's not through with Israel. And, uh, and, and, and he's made these promises to Abraham. He's a promise keeper. Uh, we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, we should be supportive of the Jewish people because they're God's chosen people. I don't have to be supportive of Israel's government. The Bible never says that. All right? I can call balls and strikes about what they do. That's political stuff. But what I know for sure is I know who wins the battle at the end of the day. When you're reading Zechariah 12, he says um, uh, there's a pronouncement, the word of the Lord concerning Israel. A declaration of the Lord who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. That's Genesis 1 and 2. The Creator God has made an announcement because He's the Creator of everything. This announcement will come true. Um, he says, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes staggering for the peoples who surround the city. The siege against Jerusalem will also involve Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who try to lift it will injure themselves severely. Listen to this. When all the nations of the earth, okay, n not just the Palestinians. So when we want to start talking about distinctively knowing that, that Bible prophecy is actually coming true, things that are happening today may be laying some groundwork and they may not. Uh, people have repeatedly thought when something's happened in, in Israel, oh, it's all fixing to happen. Be patient. But when you see all the nations, you see all the surrounding nations coming against them, uh, big things are fixing to happen. On that day, it's not a literal day, okay? But at that period of time, this is the Lord's declaration. I will strike every horse with panic and its riders with madness. It's putting... Um, an army, which of course probably isn't going to fight with, with horses. Those didn't work after the invention of the machine gun. But it, it puts it in ancient terms so they can understand. Um, God says, I'll keep a watchful eye on the house of Judah. I'll strike all the horses and the nations with blindness. He'll deal with the nations. Repeatedly in Zechariah, the nations are, are, are dealt with. And, and, and but get to Zechariah 12.10. While this is happening, while this attack has started, it would seem, or at least contemporaneously with this attack, verse 10, I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David. Who would that be? You know, the kings of, uh, the, in, in the Davidic line end with, with the sorry excuse, Zedekiah, uh, before, before Babylon destroys Jerusalem, 586 and 587. You don't have a Davidic king in Israel until Jesus comes down that mountain on Palm Sunday and they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, this house of David, though, God knows who they are, but it's really getting to the fact that the Davidic line will still be there. And, of course, that's going to get to Jesus. But uh, look what he says, though. He's pouring out his spirit 
on the residents of Jerusalem. Not just the, 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 the royalty, but everybody there. They will look at me, who's talking here? They will look at me, whom they pierced. This is national revival. One of the consistent things you'll see, and if you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, it's, they're very long. But he says, when nations come against them and God knocks those nations down, they're finally going to have essentially a repentance, a feeling of shame at their past history, their long uh, history of idolatry. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, but, but he's very specific throughout Ezekiel that they will actually finally feel shame for their past behavior, which I think is, is primarily... Hmm? Yeah, here in Zechariah 12, yeah. And, and, and they'll feel, but they will feel uh, uh, remorse over what they did to Jesus. Here, they're mourning. It says, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they'll weep bitterly for him. Uh, clip over to 13, 13 1, on that day, it's still that, this isn't a 24 hour day. This is a period of time. On the, it's, a, it's an expression throughout the Bible, but often that day is specifically the seven-year period of time preceding the Lord's return. It's called that day. You, you, you know, that's sometimes called the day of the Lord. On that day, a fountain will be opened up for the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and by application, I think the whole nation, to what? To wash away sin and impurity. You say, well, that happened in the first century when Jesus died. Yeah, but they said no. What's going to happen during the last days is they're going to say yes. In that sense, the fountain is opened up again. There's a pouring out of the Spirit of God. That stuff you read in Acts 2 where Peter quotes from Joel 2 and, and the moving of the Spirit of God and the clouds darken and all these things will actually happen for the Jewish people to wash away their sin and impurity. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of Armies, I will remove the names of the idols from the land, etc., um, verse 7, you'll, you'll see is something that's quoted in your New Testament. But I, I, uh, verse 7, uh, sword, awake my shepherd against the man who is my equal or my associate. Um, God says, strike the shepherd, strike Jesus. That's the cross. That will be the basis for the fountain being opened up. But in verse 8, in the whole land, this is the Lord's declaration, verse 8, two-thirds will be cut off and die, but a third will be left in it. These are events that will, will happen during this last time. Um, God has a remnant. Paul said that in Romans 11. Elijah and, and, and the 7,000 others. There will be a remnant in this time. And, and there's going to be a national revival. Somehow the, 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 um, you know, the Gentiles, nations coming at them in a time of war is going to turn their hearts. Combined with a massive pouring out of the Spirit. When you read the book of Revelation, can you think of some, some other characters that might be fit into this and into bringing the, the revival? Two prophets. There's two witnesses or prophets in the, in the book of Revelation, and, and we, don't, we don't know exactly who they are, except it seems like during the first half of the seven-year period of time, they do the things Moses and Elijah could do, call down fire from heaven and all that kind of cool stuff. And people kept trying to kill them, and they couldn't kill them, and then they killed them. And, and, and you know what these guys were doing. They kept talking about this Jesus who died on a cross for your sins and rose again three days later. And they don't like this message because he's also the only way to heaven. And so they finally killed these people. We don't know how. And they laced dead in the streets for three days and everybody had a big party. It's going to be on CNN. You might be around to watch it. And they had a big party and they started exchanging gifts and sending cars. And oh my goodness, they resurrected in front of everybody and ascended. 
Maybe their story about Jesus who got murdered, but then resurrected three days later and ascended starts to be an, you know, be an oh boy. Yeah, they just did what, what he, he said of Jesus. And then you have those 144,000. So just understand, and they're evangelists, and they're, they're, they're sealed. They can't even be touched during this time. I'm just telling you this, um, and this is the, the upshot here. Um, God's not through with Israel. Be cautious about reading, stay up with the current events, but be cautious about people who start telling you all these Bible things are happening today. Um, I think when they happen, no one will doubt it. Everyone will know. God's not trying to hide what he's going to do. He'll say in Ezekiel 38 and 39, when I rescue them from this coming army, it's not Israel fighting. That's why it's probably different than Armageddon, different than this stuff here. He says, when I rescue them, everybody's going to know I did it, including Israel. And that's probably one of the reasons they're going to start uh, a time of, of uh, conversion. And then God's going to pour out his spirit. And uh, if you were to go on and read chapter 14, it says the enemy is going to cross the border, start splitting up all the, all the stuff that they're, all the booty they're able to take out of Israel. And, and they're, they're, they've surely won the war, right? Uh, and, and then something weird's going to happen. Uh, Jesus is going to appear, and he's going to win the war himself. And you can read Revelation 19 and say the same thing. So powerful things are happening, worldwide things. Is God through with Israel? No. What's going to happen? He's going to build this church age for a while. We have a job to do. And, and, and somehow he's going to use the Gentiles and the proliferation of churches to help bring uh, Jewish people uh, to, to uh, a revival. It's not rational, um, but if you, if you wanted to have a worldwide church, uh, I'm using church lightly, that picks emperors and raises armies, we call that the Crusades, yeah. you promise them that they can, yeah. let's say this, you weren't giving them a paycheck, right? You go kill and you take what you want. Um, if, if, if that's the kingdom and the Pope's at the top of it, you certainly don't have room for Israel to be a nation again. You know. But it's, I will say, there has been, there has been some anti-Semitism for a long time. Um, re- read a biography of Martin Luther. But uh, the fact is, Jewish writers who were Christians before World War II, they totally believed this and the way I take it. And it's a Gentile thing to, to say, no, 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 that's all figurative and it's not real promises. After World War II, you saw a resurgence among Gentiles of, hey, you know, that's kind of odd. 2,000 years, there's no Israel, and it's not as big as it's supposed to be. It's not all the land God promised Abraham. God's doing something. Well, maybe so. Yeah. 